Okay, here we go. Episode 89 of the podcast, Panos Pene, who is the co-president of the Recording Academy, also the founder of Sonic Bids, one of the early online platforms that helped artists book gigs and help promoters find talent. Ridiculously popular in its prime and actually still around, still working. We, we talk a little bit about that, kind of why that is. It's, it's kind of interesting, actually. But he's got a new book as well, Two Beats Ahead, which I thought was actually a really great read. Really interesting about how you can look at people in music to innovate and create and, and why you know music creators are some of the best creators, entrepreneurs, business people around. Really cool concept. Really great book, Two Beats Ahead. And we talk about it all. We talk about the Academy. We talk about Panos's past life at Berklee College of Music. And um, really great episode. Panos is just one of those guys that's always smart on his feet, always says the right thing. And I love talking with him. It was actually, it was great catching up with him. I haven't spoken to him in several years. And now he's got the swanky new position and is doing really cool things with the Academy. So here we go. Let's, let's dive into this. Episode 89, Panos Pene. Let's dive in. Wait, so we have a lot to talk about, but I do actually want to talk about this book, Two Beats Ahead, um, which which you wrote with uh, Michael Hendricks. And first of all, I really like this book, and I think the case studies in this are fascinating. But I'm curious, you know, one of the things that you talked about in this book was emotional due diligence and the importance of it, how we never, you know, it's something that some, sometimes gets written off, but it can be one of the most important things sometimes. As a founder or as an, an investor going into meetings, how can you think about creating positive emotional due diligence and using that concept to your advantage? That's a fantastic question. Well, I think that too often we let our reason get in the way of good decision-making. And I'm sure you've been in situations just like I've been in situations where everything checks out right but there's just something that feels off and nothing logically justifies why you feel off. There's just something that's bothering you. And it's one of those things where you say, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's just something wrong. Either it's about a person or about a, a job or about a decision you're about to make. And that's the concept of due of, of emotional diligence, which in the book is something um, that we talk about that Bjork deploys and also this venture capitalist, uh, my friend, Tim Chang. Um, and for me, actually, even what I'm doing right now, this particular uh, job that I have at the Academy, um, there's a million reasons for somebody to want to do this job, right? It's an amazing platform. It's such an incredible opportunity to be part uh, of an amazing organization that uh, I, I grew up looking up to as a kid. And even being here, I still have to pinch myself that this is the job that I have. But even with all the boxes ticking off, I still wanted to come and meet everybody in person because at the end of the day, we forget that everything is about people. If you're going to make an investment, you're not backing an idea. You're, you're backing a human being. If you're going to take an investment as an entrepreneur, you're not taking money. You're taking on the counsel and the partnership of a human being. If uh, 
you're taking a job, you're not jumping into a job description or an office, you're jumping into a relationship with a bunch of people. Um, so for me, as a matter of fact, I remember my own words coming back to my head and said, okay, I got to get on a plane and go and meet these folks because a lot of the discussions, all of the discussions happened during the pandemic over Zoom. Um, and literally the minute that I met Harvey, our CEO, and Valicia, our co-president, literally the minute I was like, yeah, this is it. I'm doing this. I literally called my wife after that meal that I had with both of them, which was an hour after I landed in LA from Cyprus. So that's a very long flight. And I finished that dinner and I called my wife and I said, I'm doing this. This is it. This was before um, you had accepted the job. You had this dinner. That is correct. And it was right as I was about to officially agree and take it on and go for it. Right. And, uh, uh, that's emotional diligence at the end of the day. And it's something that we talk about in the book. It's something that often we ignore and we've all been guilty of making decisions sometimes based on our, on our logic and our reason and what our head says, but we don't always pay attention to what our emotions and our heart says about something. And it's something too, that I think, can you lean into it? Like, I feel like I'm in a situation right now where I'm being approached by people to do something that I've never done before. And they're putting a lot of confidence in me to do this, something I'm going through right now. And I think the only explanation for them giving me this opportunity is this emotional diligence thing. So it's something that like you can kind of lean into a little bit also, right? Well, absolutely. And I think you have to be in touch and aware, consciously make yourself aware of of this element, right? Uh, of your own emotions about a situation. Um, and often we just don't sit back and pay attention to that voice that tells us, mm, wait for a minute uh, or go for it. There's a million reasons why you should not do this, but go for it because you don't know what's on the other side. Take that leap, if you will. And uh, the best experiences of my life tended to be ones where there was probably enough good rational reasons to not do them, such as quitting my job when I was 27 and booking all the amazing artists that I was involved as, as an agent and deciding to start a company. Um, or after I sold Sonic Biz, my company, deciding to go into Berkeley and do something totally different and, and found an institute, which I had never done in my life. I never taught anything in my life. Um, or even after Berkeley coming and doing uh, this job at the academy. Sometimes there's, um, you just have to listen ultimately to what your heart and what your um, soul tells you where, other than just simply going by the, uh, uh, you know, the proverbial box uh, and, and checking it off, if you will. Right. You know, something else that the book talks about that I think is really interesting is is uh, personality-led businesses. It uses the example of Richard Branson, um, you know, leading Virgin. I feel like every band is a personality-led business. Is that something, you know, how do you find the line of how much personality of the founder should go into the business? Do you think Sonic Bids have the personality of Panos? How, how do you balance those two things? 
without a doubt, any business takes on the personality of its founder in the early days. And you're imbuing a business with your DNA, frankly, whether you like it or not, because most of the times at the beginning, you are the business. Um, so it's inextricable. The business is you and you're the business. If you're conscious of it, then you're consciously also laying the foundation for the culture that you would like to have, which plays a far more important role in the success of any new enterprise than any plan, any financing, uh, any projection, any um, marketing team or anything else. At the end of the day, culture is what determines the outcome uh, of an enterprise. And the same is true for small upstarts and uh, entrepreneurial companies as it is for bigger companies. The difference is that when you're founding a company, you really have the chance from uh, the ground floor to create that structure of what the culture will be. And often, if you don't do it, then the default is that the company purely takes your personality. Um, for better now, or worse. For better or for worse. Now, it's amazing because often those founder personalities uh, and that DNA that the founder abused within a company is so strong uh, and so resilient that it persists way after a founder is gone. And look at Apple where it's now 10 years since Steve Jobs' death. And I think finally, Apple, since about three or four years ago, it's beginning to sort of move away from the, uh, the, the long shadow that someone like Steve Jobs cast and taking on a different personality. Um, but with Sonic Bids, I think that culture endured for a long time. I mean, I ran the company for 13 years, but also when I founded it, because I was so conscious of the fact that I wanted to create a culture as much as a business, I had created a document that was called the 10 good rules of Sonic Bids, which eventually got amended to 13 good rules of Sonic Bids. And I'm this I'm is your Jerry Maguire moment right it here. It was my is Jerry it? Maguire mission statement moment. Um, and to this day, I meet so many of my former teammates at Sonic Bids who can literally recite every one of those good rules. Don't ask me to do it, I don't remember all of them. Um, but they did create a particular culture. And I think that this is the big role and the important role that founders play. At the end of the day, more than an idea, because ideas are a dime a dozen, but every individual is unique. Every founder is unique. Uh, we all have that one chromosome that differentiates us from one another. Everything else is exactly the same. Uh, so it's that unique personality of the founder that I think uh, creates the differentiation of a company, even if two or three or four companies are founded of the exact same idea. So when you come in as this new position as the co-president of the Grammys, are you coming in because Harvey thinks Panos is gonna be a great fit for the culture? Does he think Panos is gonna bring the culture in a little bit of a different direction that's going to be needed? Do you find yourself having to adjust to the culture? What does that look like culturally to come into the organization? It's organic. Everything is organic. Um, I can't speak on behalf of Harvey. You would have to have a special podcast with Harvey for that. 
Um, but certainly in uh, any leader uh, choosing to hire anybody at any level of the organization, one of the assessments they have to make is whether or not this particular individual would be both uh, correct for the and, and a good fit for the culture that the organization currently has, but also any good leader recognizes the need to reorient a culture or evolve a culture as every culture needs to be uh, evolved as an organization is striving to reimagine what it does and to grow to a new level than where it's been. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're called the Recording Academy and you've been around for 64 years, whether you're Berkeley College of Music and you've been around for 75 years, or whether you are a startup and you've been around for 74 days. Um, you have to constantly challenge uh, the very culture that you have and whether it's the appropriate one that you uh, need in order to grow the organization to its next level. And every organization has to keep growing and has to keep adjusting to an environment that's changing ever so quickly. Um, so I can't speak on behalf of Harvey, but I am sure that that was part of his calculation. Uh, and look, as a person coming in, uh, at this role, at the highest level of the organization, certainly one of the calculations that one has to make is how will I fit within this culture and will I be able to operate and express myself within the culture? But then very importantly, if you have a level, a, a position uh, as co-president of an organization, uh, then you know that you play a very big role in also transforming, um, uh, evolving, and architecting the culture that you would take for the organization to go to, again, that next stage uh, of its evolution. And that's something that me, Harvey, and Valicia, our, our, uh, my co-president, are very intently doing. We understand the critical value of culture, and we understand the critical need that the academy or any organization has to reconstitute its culture to accommodate its strategy. So I know Valicia, I think there was a press release that said, you know, she was very focused on people and you were going to be focused on innovation. There's been a lot written kind of describing your role coming into the academy, but it feels like you're kind of overseeing a lot. For the record, can you kind of give us an overview of what this position is and what you're focusing on and what you're trying to bring to the academy? There is a formal reporting structures, which every organization needs, um, which I'll reply to in a minute. Uh, but much more importantly, if you are uh, co-stewarding an organization, in our situation as a troika between Harvey, the CEO, and me and Valicia as co-presidents, I like to say that uh, an organism uh, may have a left brain and a right brain, but ultimately you need both sides to operate the entire organism and the entire body. And just like scientists will tell you that there's plenty of signals that get fired from either part of your uh, brain to make it work. And that it's not as simple as saying, well, the left brain uh, commands creativity and the right brain or the other way around, uh, uh, the, the right brain commands creativity and the left brain commands analysis. Uh, well, okay, as a human being, you need both. So Valicia and I 
Um, at the end of the day, we don't demarcate the organization in two um, and somehow think of it that way. We think of it as a joint uh, structure that uh, has to interoperate in order for it to be successful. Now, um, obviously, it's also important that an organization has clear reporting lines. Um, and uh, I personally oversee what we call the entertainment and consumer division that has to do with the production of the show, that has to do um, with uh, uh, artist uh, relations, with ticketing, with sponsorship, with marketing, with digital presence, uh, and also the financial area of the organization, um, as well as what you mentioned, leading our effort into uh, activating, activating what the academy does on a global level. It's a new world. It's a globalized world. Talent is universally evenly distributed. Opportunity is not, unfortunately. Part of our job as an academy is to be a platform uh, that enables music people to activate their talent and express themselves and access opportunity and access educational means and support and advocacy at every level, irrespective of the passport you carry, the language you speak, or the place you were born into. So that is um, a, a big reason why I'm here. Um, but again, Valicia and I work very much like partners along with Harvey, more so than splitting the organization in two. So uh, she's uh, extremely involved in any area that I'm involved. Uh, as well as uh, the other way around. As a matter of fact, that's the fun part of having a team. That's the fun part of having a management structure that is very different than um, what organizations once once had. It's, uh, it's an evolving, complex industry, a fast-paced world. And our view is that it requires a different approach to management um, that in order for us to be successful uh, as a, an organization. Yeah, this is kind of like an interesting time for award shows. I know in Nashville, like the ACMs just teamed up with Amazon to exclusively stream on Amazon for for the Grammys. How are you thinking about this award show and this amazing event for the next 10 years, 20 years? Anything you can share about where you think the event might need to go? Or do you think that in its form, it, it works and people love tuning in every year? The last year award show was incredible also, which I think might have been before you were officially involved, but it was but it feels like it's a great show. How do you think about it? Look, we have a strong partnership with CBS. It's been around for a very, very long time. Um, and we certainly plan to continue growing and evolving that very, very strong, uh, strong partnership. Uh, it's a changing world. Everybody knows it. Uh, not only are audiences congregating around traditional linear TV programming, but we also know there's a whole generation of uh, viewers and, and content consumers, if you want to call them that, that are accessing um, experiences and content on all kinds of other platforms, digital platforms, metaverse platforms, on and on. Our job as an academy is to ultimately pursue our mission. And that mission is about providing uh, for me both a, um, a, a literal and sometimes a metaphorical stage and illuminate talent on that stage, irrespective of where the talent is. 
where those metaphorical stages are, whether it's called a linear television, whether it's called social media, whether it's uh, new digital platforms, uh, Twitch, TikTok, um, uh, or it's the new metaverse that uh, Facebook is, is, is busy creating or other, uh, or other platforms, then certainly our job is to look for creative ways to partner with them. Uh, because at the end of the day, our primary orientation and focus is the creator. It's the people we represent. It's the music people that create the sonic soundscape, if you will, that all of us experience every single minute of our day and that informs so much um, of our life experience. And that's what we're committed to, uh, if you will. How do you create that culture of innovation at the academy, you know, for people underneath you, is it constantly just, you know, telling people dare to suck, as it says in the book? Is, it, is that the motto? <laughs> well, this is where you have to um, approach it um, with the mind of a gardener, not an architect. Uh, and we talk about that in the book as well. Uh, it's a very famous quote from uh, uh, Brian Eno, it's not quite a, a, a quote as it is. He has a series of playing cards that are called oblique strategies. I don't know if you've seen them, but when Eno would sort of get stuck in the studio, they came up with this idea of, of a set of cards that have different phrases and you flip them over and they're means of inspiration. And one of those means of inspiration is this um, phrase gardening or architecture. And it really struck me because cultures and even the word implies it, they're organic. They're not inorganic. Architecture is inorganic. Gardening is organic. And this means that you can't quite legislate it. You can create conditions for it. So you're talking about innovation. I don't believe that innovation is something you manufacture in a box, in a room, in a building, in a country. At the end of the day, all you can do as a leader is create conditions for that innovation to arise because you are bringing people together in uh, an intentional yet organic way and you're creating the platforms for them to express themselves in the best possible way. And that is what great producers do in a studio. That is what good bosses do in a company. That is what great leaders do in, uh, with a country at the end of the day. And that's my approach at, at the Academy. Um, do we need to innovate? Absolutely, every organization has to. Do we need to keep thinking um, and, 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 and watching for um, where the, uh, the puck will be or, or where, where the, uh, the soccer ball will be? Uh, and, and you look for those spaces and you run into them, right? As a good athlete does. Um, because good athletes, good, good, good footballers or soccer players in American speak, uh, or good hockey players, they don't chase the ball or the puck. They go where the puck or where the ball will be, right? They see spaces. That's what distinguishes, uh, for me, a great, uh, a great soccer player, uh, or a great entrepreneur. They see things that others don't. They see space that other, others don't. Innovators do the same. They either see spaces or create spaces for others to run into them 
and make something uh, because of of that space that they were afforded. So that to me is how personally I'm approaching how to create innovation. I look around me at the academy and all I see is talent. I look at, around me at the academy and all I see is assets and opportunities. Um, and I've always been a glass half full person. Um, and when I'm at the academy, I don't see a glass half full. I see a glass three quarters full. I see a lot of opportunity and a lot of amazing human beings around me. And my job is not to tell them what to do. My job is to create the space for them to be able to express themselves and create the future, not because I tell them what that future is, but because they see it and I'm giving them the tools and the means and the opportunities and the networks to be able to design and create that future. What's the thing with at Berkeley as a student, they always tell you, you know, you have a student card, use the student card and working at Berkeley, I feel like you can tap into a professional student card of it feels like anyone will get behind, you know, for students for Berkeley, it's such a big name. The Recording Academy Academy is such a big name. How do you think about leveraging those names to open, you know, it's almost like the skeleton key to open any door when you have the Academy behind you, we have a college and, you know, Berkeley behind you. How do you think about leveraging those names and are you, do you find that you're basically able to walk into any door that you want to walk into or any, any places that you haven't been able to get into with the academy and with Berkeley College of Music behind you? First of all, I'm really happy that you read Two Beats Ahead so well that you can keep quoting from it because <laughs> that's, that's, that's uh, something that Pharrell told me uh, in, in an interview that I had with him, that music is the skeleton, the skeleton key that opens every door. Uh, that was the first it chapter. Is, it is the first chapter. Um, hopefully you got beyond the first chapter. Uh, I, I think I, I've I, proven I to have gone beyond the first chapter, I, Panos. I, I, know, <laughs> I, know, I know you did. Um, the truth is, yes, it is. It is a skeleton key that opens every door because every, every human being has a connection to music. And our first heroes tend to be musicians. The first points of inspiration for us tend, tend to be songs and, and music. Um, uh, think of how many of our life events happen to the soundtrack of music. Everything, everything. Right. Um, now, when you join organizations like Berkeley or the Recording Academy, um, the truth is that, yes, there's probably not a single kid on this planet who plays music who has not heard or has dreamt of winning a Grammy Award. And uh, I would say a big majority of young people growing up playing music have heard of Berklee College of Music. Maybe not as many as dream, as, uh, dream winning a Grammy, but Berkeley is also an extremely recognized name. Uh, well, you realize that it gives you access, but it also gives you great responsibility. At the end of the day, when you work at Berkeley or when you work at the Academy, these organizations have been there before you, you're gonna be there after you. You're a custodian at the end of the day. You're not an owner, you're a custodian. Your job is to take something, uh, take care of it while it's under your aegis, and then deliver it in an even better state to the next generation, the next person who takes over uh, from you. Um, yes, I love the access that both of these organizations have, have given me and the permission. But then you ask yourself, but what more can we do to activate that mission that we have? Uh, how do we use this 
great responsibility that we have to do good for more people, more music people, if you will. Um, so that's the mindset through which I've approached my job at Berkeley or, or here. Interestingly, when you're starting a company, it's very different because nobody knows you. You have the opposite problem. You have a product without any renown. So you spend most of your energy trying to get renown. When you're Berkeley or the Academy, you have a renown and you have a product. Now, those products, by virtue of the fact that they are products, whatever you may call them, curriculum, show, educational programs, um, initiatives, well, all of them need to keep evolving. So you ask yourself, given that I have this permission, what space am I creating for myself to keep evolving um, that product, that service, that experience, that uh, initiative? Uh, unfortunately, many organizations, especially storied organizations, get too confused about their product and their purpose or about their intention and their invention. Yeah. Um, and I would say that's when they get in trouble, right? When you confuse what, what you do with why you exist, who you are with what your reasons are for existence, for getting up in the morning. Um, and organizations that have confused the two tend to go to the wayside. Um, for me, it's the difference between, say, um, a Reader's Digest and a National Geographic. National Geographic did not confuse itself with the magazine. They thought themselves in a different way. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of Reader's Digest, but I bet you many of the people listening to this podcast may not even know exactly what it is. Uh, but almost everybody can close their eyes and think of the yellow border of National Geographic. As a matter of fact, if all you saw is that, you would say, that's National Geographic. You know, you know what that is. Are you kind of saying that, you know, when you work at Berkeley, when you work at the Academy, it's so easy to just go around and just like network and to just talk to people and hit people up. And what's more important is being intentional with who you're reaching out to and how you're using this skeleton key. Is that kind of, is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? Your mission is your intention, is your reason for existing. And your product is the temporary means that you're using, the vessel that you're using temporarily to attain that mission. Um, and if you get too married to the idea that your product is your purpose, then you will eventually run out of runway. Um, you see this even in the music business. Right. For many labels, they confuse their product, the LP, the CD, the cassette tape with ultimately, well, what do we do? Right. I mean, is our job to manufacture CDs or uh, or vinyl or is our job to find amazing artists and then bring them to audiences? Very much like car companies are asking themselves. Are we a car company that makes cars or are we in the mobility space or are we a company that makes cars 
that have combustible engines? Or do we make computers that happen to have wheels that transport human beings from one place to another? Right. And the best companies right. are able to abstract themselves from what they do because they see themselves as offering something far greater than just a singular product. And whether it's called the Recording Academy or Berkeley College of Music or Warner Brothers uh, Records, um, I'm using an old name for the, uh, for the company, Warner Music or whatever, uh, ultimately, these are the existential questions you have to ask yourself. Going back for a minute in the life of Panos, growing up in Cyprus, you joined the army band. You had a mandatory arm, army service and you ended up getting into the army band. Did you chase that down? And what was your experience like being in the military, being in an army band? Has, does that have any effect on the way you do business today? I'm really impressed you even know that. Not that many people know that I served in the military. We've got a great um, research team here, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Um, yes, yes, yes. I had a mandatory service for two years, and I was hell-bent on getting into Berkeley. It was the From only Rolling place. Stone, right? You read about oh. Berkeley in, a, in Rolling Stone magazine, right? Is that how you learned about it? That is correct. I was flipping Rolling Stone magazine um which was already several months old because in you know this is a different era right the only way for me to access anything about america was through the art magazine that i was lucky to get my hands on at my local newsstand and um rolling stone at the time published every every two weeks um and uh it came to cyprus i don't know like a couple of months after its publication date um and this was one that had, I remember very clearly, had Madonna on the cover. And um, I was flipping through the pages and there was an eighth, uh, a quarter of a page ad um, with an artist called John Schofield, who I ended up booking years later. That's John right, the current agency, yeah. yeah. That's correct. He's a very famous guitar player. And um, it said something along the lines of, you know, uh, my music didn't have direction, but when I went to Berkeley, I was able to make a career out of it. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. By the way, years later, the Berkeley folks told me that that's the only Berkeley ad that ever ran in Rolling Stone. And it was a remnant ad that they got uh, for free. Um, and, you know, I saw that ad and I, I wanted to legitimize my music habit by telling my parents that I, I would actually go to college for it. Um, because in 1980 Cyprus, I don't think any parent wanted their child to go and study music. Um, and, uh, that's how I decided I wanted to go to Berkeley. And when I had to go to the army, which was mandatory, I said, you know, I'm going to do what it takes to get into the army band because it's the only way I'm going to spend two years and not totally forget how to play the guitar, um, and to stand a chance for auditioning to get into, uh, get into Berkeley. Um, so I learned how to play the uh, slide trombone um, because I, I knew that that particular that had a need for three slide trombonists. I couldn't play a note of slide trombone, um, but within a few months, I actually I learned how to play what in hindsight turns out to be a pretty difficult instrument. Yeah, um, and I was good enough to get into the band, and uh, you know. After that, I, um, I was very fortunate to get admitted to the only school I ever applied. I had no plan B. I tend to not have plan Bs in life in general. 
Um, and uh, that's kind of what brought me to America. I feel like you and I, though, went through similar things of being guitar players and then having this moment of saying, you know what, maybe I'm not cut out to be a guitar player and shifting more of the business side. Like you went to Berkeley for performance and graduated as one of the first classes with a music business degree. But to me, that's funny because I feel like you're so entrepreneurial and so dedicated. So let's figure anything out. Did you realize you didn't love guitar as much as you thought you did? Or was there a drive specifically for guitar that was missing? It seems like you you would have been able to figure it out if that was what you really wanted to do. One of the best lessons that I've learned when I was a young person was um, know when to quit. Um, and the truth is I was just not as good a guitar player um, as I would have wanted to be as somehow the theoretical knowledge that I had of music, which was good enough um, for me to actually test out of uh, all of harmonies at Berkeley. So I, I, I was able to skip four semesters of harmony just because my um, intellectual understanding of harmonic concepts was, I guess, pretty advanced. Was that from being in the military band? Is that where you, where you learned it? Or did you learn it on your own? Or uh, I was self-taught. I bought every book that I could get my hands on, um, even in pirate form in Cyprus, because back then there wasn't a whole lot of bookstores that I could get stuff from, and there was no internet. Um, and um, I was able to test out all of all the harmony uh, classes at Berkeley, which having gone there, you know, that they're pretty advanced. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but my guitar playing was just never quite as good as my theoretical understanding of music. Um, and, um, you know, I had learned that there was a new major being, uh, created called music business. Um, I connected with the chair at the time who was probably chair when you were there, Don Gorder. Um, and you know, I was a young punk. Didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be in music. So I ended up studying music business. Um, and I would have never really had that um, experience had I not developed, I would say, two things that have been important for me throughout my life, which is know when to quit and uh, don't be afraid to jump into things and just figure your way through them. Yeah, like when you started Sonic Bids, for example, you had this challenge of creating a two-sided marketplace. And one of the things that you decided early, early on was that you were going to focus on the promoters, right? Why was why were the promoters the side to focus on first for Sonic Bids? Because that's how you create demand. Um, at the end of the day, you can have all the bands on the planet, but if you have no promoters, Good luck and all the bands on the, on the planet will not attract all the promoters but the other uh, the other is true if you have even a handful of good promoters you will get all the bands you'll want the to play, artists yeah who want to play those festivals so because i was a talent agent when i was an agent and i was quite young at the time and i was working with artists like leonard cohen and nina simone and pat metheny and chick korea and a number of the people that i grew up admiring I had a realization and that was my relationships with artists actually come and go. Artists switch agencies all the time. As a matter of fact, we did not have any contracts with any artists. Uh, it was literally a handshake um, because you couldn't prevent an artist from switching an agent that didn't like you. Um, 
But the relationships that I had forever and ever and ever were with the promoters. Uh, I was at the time in charge, uh, by the time that I, uh, I left the agency, I was in charge of the international division. Um, and I realized that it's that network that I had that made every artist uh, that we connected with want to join the agency. Actually, in our situation, what distinguished us as an American agency was the deep global context that we had, which is such an illustrative and such an amazing experience for me because at a very young age, um, I developed a global network, which to this day serves me quite well, um, both at the agency and with Sonic Bids and at Berkeley and here. Part of what I brought is this network of, of global relationships that I've, I've, I've developed starting as a, as a talent agent. Um, so when I went to Sonic Bids, I realized, well, that's the most important network I have to develop. It's the promoters. I had not had the experience as an, as an artist, as an agent, I would have probably not had that intuitive understanding. Um, and I frankly ended up paying a bunch of promoters to join our service. What was uh, the first venue? It was, it was here in Nashville, right? What was the first venue yes, that you signed on? It was the Exit Inn in Nashville. Chris Cobb. And it was for, it was for an event called the Nashville New Music Conference. Um, and I, I forget that you're in Nashville. That's fantastic. Exactly. Nashville has a special place in my heart because had it not been for Nashville, there would be no Sonic Bits. Is that it true? Was, when you got the exit in on, did that make it easier to get everyone after that? Yes, because at the time I got um, the um, the music conference, which was uh, uh, using the exit in as a venue um, to commit to booking five artists at exit in. and then i went and literally took what was the boston phoenix band guide which published every band's email address and um, i did something that today would be completely unfathomable which is that i copied every single email address and spammed every band and said now, join something bits people do that today have, i get so well, much i get so much crap from people people do that today <laughs> don't, don't tell that to european regulators uh, of privacy um, so I told, I would send an email to the bands and said, if you want to play the exit in in Nashville for the National New Music Conference, apply through Sonic Bids. And, um, of course, bands wanted to play. And, um, you know, I actually ended up paying, uh, uh a fee to secure the venue and then I gave them money to give the bands to be able to go and play the show. Uh, and it was just a bet that I took that if I did that, I would get, get what in modern day is called network liquidity. You start getting traction within the network. You start creating connections between the two sides. And then if you're lucky enough, it becomes a flywheel model. Uh, it becomes a virtuous cycle. And you know what? 21 years later, as a matter of fact, 21 years and almost exactly two months to the date, uh, Sonic Bits in some form or another is still around. And that is a great lesson. If you build two-sided networks, whether it's called Sonic Bits or Craigslist or eBay, they're extremely hard to kill. They're extremely hard to compete with because they just keep going on. I sold the company eight years ago. Um, I haven't had anything to do with Sonic this for eight years, but sometimes uh, at times I'm, I'm thinking, 
holy moly, I can't believe this thing is still around. Uh, it's, it's around in a, in a diminished capacity, but it's still there. Yeah, it's still there. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I use Sonic Bids. Uh, I, I, I used it before the pandemic for something. Were you ever an assistant at the Curland Agency or did you come right in as an agent? I'm proud to say that I was an assistant and I learned so much by being somebody's assistant. Um, and, um, it was the best learning experience that I ever had sitting at the other side of the table of my boss, who was Ted Curlin, uh, who's still a good friend of mine, listening to him on the phone, filing away back then you did this, filing away all his correspondence and all the contracts, looking at every contract and realizing, wow, he sells the same band or $2,000 and it turns around and sells it for $25,000 to somebody else. What the hell? Um, and I would read the band, I would read the band's writers. Um, and I also learned from being an assistant, how to anticipate needs, how to listen, how to pay attention to the smallest details, how actually often your performance is judged, not by the big things you get right, but sometimes by the small things you get right because those small things to you as an assistant are big things that impact your boss in a big way uh, that you may not always understand, right? It's the flight choice seat selection that you made Thanks, that man. ends up being convenient somebody for 13 hours because all you did as an assistant is just check the box and be like, oh, okay, 2D, whatever. And then you realize, well, if you did a bit more research, no, 2D is next to the bathroom. And it's actually crammed in, uh, you know, a small part of the plane. Seats this don't person recline. has to travel for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, they don't recline because it's whatever the, 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 the last row or whatever it is. And then this person has to fly for 12 hours and then go straight into a meeting with a seven hour time difference. And they're totally jet lagged. And the fact that they didn't get a good night's sleep uh, prevents them from having their optimal performance. Or you can spend an extra three minutes doing some research and then your boss gets to their next meeting and they're refreshed and they've done amazingly well. So for you, it's a choice of 2D or 2E. Uh, for them, it is a choice of a 12-hour flight, sleeping or no sleeping, and securing a $5 million deal or not. Um, so I, uh, I loved being an assistant and frankly, I would do it any day. Wow. Okay. Fair enough. Do you, wait, do you have an assistant right now? I do. And, uh, and it's, it's probably good working for Panos, right? She's probably learn, learning a lot here. <laughs> well, you, you're going to have to ask them. What, so I feel like, you know, since I graduated from Berkeley a handful of years ago to right now, I feel like even when I graduated, I had a sense of what the industry was. And I feel like in the handful of years, it's completely been changed with TikTok and influencer marketing and the metaverse and Roblox and all these things. Do you think we're in a particularly fast and accelerating change in the music industry or having been in the industry for so long, does this feel just like another routine shift of Napster, downloads, streaming? Does, are the changes that we're going through right now in the industry, do they feel routine or do they feel particularly accelerated, especially with the pandemic the past year? Both. Um, it's accelerated routine, if you will. Um, change is constant. I mean, we tend to look back at history and we think, ah, those 
those people from 40 years ago, things were just moving so slow. Well, that's not true. If you look at the history of the music industry, if you look at the history of humanity, change has always been a constant, right? Um, there's a lot more noise today because you hear about the change nonstop in so many different ways. What's changed is the amount of inputs that we have, right? And, and what's changed is that there is a lot of broadcast and probably not enough receiving. Um, but if you look at the music industry, it's always evolved. Um, I mean, people forget that 70 or 80 years ago, multi-track recording did not even exist. A hundred years ago, recording was just in its infancy, right? 70 years ago, radio was just beginning to come of age. And then, you know, 60 years ago, television was just beginning to enter Americans or, or people's living rooms. Right. Um, cable TV did not become a reality until just 30 odd years ago. Um, social media, hard to imagine, but it's actually been around for about 20 odd years. I'm old enough to remember Friendster and MySpace and some of those early, I, I, I had a company that was launched right around that time. Uh, YouTube is, uh, is, is not even you know, 15, 16 years old, right? So change is, is constant, it's happening. Um, but also if you really think about it in the grander scheme of things, What's going to be enduring? I don't know. What's enduring is the desire of humans to listen and access and connect and emote with and through music. That's never going to change. Uh, everything else, it's a product, not a purpose. So if you don't get too caught up in the products and you keep asking yourself, what's my purpose as a musician, as a music organization, as a music college, as a music company, then you don't get caught up in the noise. You know, I mean, Vine was a big thing not that long ago. It ain't right. around. Um, but you know what? I, I think Sean Mendes became a star because of, of Vine. Um, and, um, you know, there, there, there are platforms um, uh, that were once very important that no longer are, like MySpace. Right. But um, if you look at life as um, sort of the equivalent of, of, of uh, uh, when archaeologists do uh, digging, right? No city is, is built in pure isolation, more or less. Everything is built on top of something else. Even if what was there before it wasn't a city, well, there was something else before it. There was a form of civilization, there was a form of life before our current form of civilization or life in one capacity or another. We may look down on it. We may think of it as archaic. We may think of it as uh, not advanced, but that's just arrogant, right? So um, all the tech companies today think of themselves as ultra advanced and ultra different and that they're innovating at the speed of sound and on and on and on well i will tell you that's an arrogant view because for their innovation to happen a whole lot of other innovations had to happen um, and sometimes as a matter of fact 
the early innovations are even harder to come about because they're, they invented both the infrastructure and the innovation upon that infrastructure that it was built. So I think you have to approach this stuff with humility, uh, with the uh, uh, sort of uh, dispassion and just realize that um, everything keeps evolving. Whether or not change is faster now than ever before, I don't know because I haven't really lived any time before, uh, really. Uh, I've only lived in the last 49 years of my life and I don't remember a time when things weren't changing. Fair enough. Seems like a great place to wrap it up. Have we left anything out here? Have anything that's been unsaid though that we need to cover we haven't mentioned? Well, if we said everything that's to be said in an hour, then neither of us are doing our job. Then for the hour, have we, have we, have we said a lot here? Have we done a good, a good job here? <laughs> anything we should like, include for sure. I would like to think that for the, uh, the 57 minutes that you and I have spoken, we've covered quite a lot of ground. And that tells you that hopefully we had an interestingly, an interesting enough conversation for, for both of us, first of all. And then your, your, your listeners, well, maybe they come first and we come second. But if we didn't have an interesting conversation, it wouldn't be interesting for them. Uh, but no, Zach, it's, it's a pleasure uh, to, to see you again. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's why life doesn't end when you hit stop recording. Uh, that's the fun part of the, uh, of the life we get to live, which is that you and I can continue this conversation at any other time without the benefit uh, or the drawback of a microphone. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. You came up reading Rolling Stone in Cyprus. Any uh, sources or anything you think kids should be reading today if they want to break into the music industry? Books. Read, period. Just read. Don't skim. Read. Immerse yourself in things. Be open-minded. Uh, read things that have nothing to do with your industry. Be open, be inspired, look up, not down. Um, look within, not for the approval of others. Um, you know, do what's meaningful for you, not what others think is important to them. If you do that, you'll keep going. Well, Panos, great to see you and thanks for taking the time and hope we get the chance to connect again and, uh, and maybe do it in person sometime soon. Sounds, sounds good. There you have it. Panos on the podcast. And the book is Two Beats Ahead, which he co-wrote with Michael Hendricks. Really recommend this. This is actually a really great read, fast read. I, I read this really fast, at least a couple days. Great case studies, great music history. If you're a music industry history buff, you're going to love this. Some great stuff about like Richard Branson, too. And just a really great read. Two Beats Ahead. Check this book out. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at nashvillebriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. The Zach Kuhn Show is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. We're proud to be part of it. It's a great network. And uh, that's it. That's all I got for this week. We'll see you next time. Bye.